Welcome to The Nine Line, your news and information source for healthcare-related issues impacting Southern Nevada veterans, and a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. And now, here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Welcome to The Nine Line Podcast. I'm your host, John Archiquette, returning from my uh, my short sabbatical up in the, the Great Northwoods. How was it, John? It was wonderful. What's a vacation like, John? <laughs> uh, I'll let you know sometime when you take one. But <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. No, I appreciate your dedication to uh, to keeping the podcast going in my absence, Josh. You guys did a great job last week. Well, thank you. I try. I do my best. I really do. So I I hope I lived up to your lofty standards. <laughs> no, it was honestly it was a great topic. Um, you know, very necessary. That topic. was very yeah. timely. I yeah. thought it was a great episode. Um, you know, Joe and Doctor Mooring were phenomenal guests. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, give a quick thank you to them. And, uh, you know, as, as somebody who is a Afghanistan veteran myself, it was something that, that weighed heavily on my mind. And um, it was nice to hear their perspective on things. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of phenomenal guests. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have our, uh, our, at this point, I feel like they're honorary just hosts of the show. Uh, Dr. Daisley and Dr. Kung are joining us. Um, we have a lot of things to talk about with them today. Um, not only are we getting some updates on, on covid because that's still an ongoing issue. Um, we have the flu shots, or flu season coming up, and flu shots are a big point of focus uh, going forward. So, gentlemen, thank you, as always, for being here. Good to be here. Thank you. So, just to talk a little bit about the flu uh, and flu season, you know, last year it seemed like, you know, we gave we had the flu shots, we, we warned people about the flu, but it seemed like flu kind of flew under the radar, excuse the, the turn of phrase. Um, you know, it was unusually low levels. Uh, statistically, only 0.2% of respiratory specimens that were tested in U.S. labs actually tested positive for the flu virus. Um, you know, that's unbelievably low, seeing as how it tends to peak somewhere around 26 to 30%, it seems like. Um, you know, in pediatric cases, there was only one recorded death last year from flu, whereas normally... They see somewhere in the 20s and 30s up to even 200 was the highest. Um, so, you know, it, it, based on last year, it's like, oh, okay, well, maybe the flu isn't as big of a deal during COVID times. What are you, like, what are you predicting this year? Well, I think overall, a lot of people think that we just forgot about the flu and we're not reporting it and we're just focusing on COVID, like this is some new entity and forget about everything else that's going on, and that's not true. We are watching it closely. The CDC is monitoring on a weekly basis. We are uh, noting that even in the Southern Hemisphere before all this began, that it was lower than it was here. And that's where they have their winter season when we're having our summer. So we already anticipated that would happen last year. And so that's where kind of where we were. And so we saw low numbers. People were masked for the most part. That helped a lot to decrease the numbers. This season is going to be different because we have inconsistency there. We have a lot of people that have been home for some time. And so they haven't built up their immune system for it. We have probably less people that have been vaccinated overall. We have kids that are going to school again. We have a lot of different factors there that make us believe that it's going to be uglier this year than it was last year. So I think those are things to prepare for when it comes to flu season this year. And this is one of those points where we have to kind of tell people and and reinforce that COVID is not a flu or the flu. It's two totally different things we're dealing with here. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, and the trends that we've seen so far are coming from the Southern Hemisphere, um, you're seeing an uptick then in the flu cases? They Definitely more than before. We're not seeing the ugly rise of what we would expect here. But I think overall they have been better as far as masking and things like that than we have traditionally anyway. I mean, we had that, uh, that time where people, it was told to us that it was okay for those that are uh, vaccinated to not mask. But then, unfortunately, those that were unvaccinated went ahead and went unmasked as well. Mm -hmm. And so that really changed everything up a lot. And I think that's something that you wouldn't see in the Southern Hemisphere so so much. It's a different culture altogether. They saw even numbers that were even lower than ours last season. So that's where we're looking at theirs this season and, or you know, this season before ours, looking at it saying, yeah, it's definitely lower, but we can't anticipate the same trajectory as here. Mm -hmm. So like you said, you know, wearing a mask, better hand hygiene, social distancing, those are things that are, are going to combat the flu just as much as, as combating uh, you know, coronavirus. Um, did we see any other extenuating circumstances that may have resulted in the, the lower, or was it a less virulent strain that was there last year? Mm -mm. The biggest change besides these risk mitigation strategies that you talked about, and I think it's proof positive that it works, the masking, the distancing. What we are seeing this year that we didn't have last year is schools. So now that schools are open and uh, not all children are being masked, we are seeing an uptick already in regards to respiratory viruses, RSV. We think that that will be a uh, predictor of flu to come. And because we've already started to see an increase in respiratory illnesses amongst children, we anticipate that we will also see an increase in flu this season, uh, especially since, as Dr. Daisley mentioned, we're not distancing and we're not masking as rigorously as we had last year. And there are definitely other viruses that are also higher. RSV is definitely a big one, probably the biggest one, but then a pneumovirus is already out there as well. We are also seeing the other common cold viruses, which are kind of similar to this one because they're also coronaviruses. So if we look at any of those as parallels, we can also note that it, there will be a rise. Yep. Now, do you think there's going to be an increase in COVID testing kind of as a result of these, you know, other other illnesses that people may ju jump to the conclusion like, oh, well, what if this is COVID? Um, is that going to put a strain on the amount of testing available? I think that it, it could put a strain on things overall because you're going to have all different age groups. You're going to definitely have children, which we're seeing a lot more infections with kids. They're going to be tested more frequently as well. Our older geriatric population is going to be affected more because if this becomes something where people could get both the flu as well as COVID, that could be an issue. We still have a percentage of our population in our community that don't vaccinate normally for flu and will not vaccinate for COVID, and that becomes a problem as well. Although it is good that some of those that are hesitant, as well as our anti-vaxxers, even though they won't come out and say it, they, they do are getting vaccinated and those numbers are coming down slowly. So that, that was one thing that I wanted to kind of ask both of you about, because we've seen uh, in the past the flu vaccine is almost a, a, a standard thing. Like every, everybody gets it right. Like that's just kind of the way it goes. But now we've kind of seen in the past year or so, even even since last flu season, this this rise of, of vaccine hesitancy and people who were would get vaccine for any number of vaccines are now vaccine hesitant just because of the COVID vaccine. In your practice and having talked to patients leading up to the flu season, have you seen people who were otherwise fine with flu vaccines before now being hesitant about it? 
Yeah, I think that there are some that are kind of in that category. However, there's less so because I think that where we've seen on the unfortunate combination of politics with this, which it should not be, is COVID, uh, but not so with the flu because it's something that we've, we've seen for generations now and it's been a common practice. It's just a lot of the individuals are either anti-vaxxers in general or they get a symptom base that is similar to the flu and they feel like they get the flu from the flu vi uh, vaccine, which is not the case. We know a lot of times it's allergy, it's something that's else that's going on. It's the actual reactogenicity of the virus, of the vaccine itself that is causing that. And I think that is well less understood by many individuals. So I see it less so, at least in my population and those that I see in the clinic as, as well as in patients. But overall, it, it is a problem that I think is a little more so than before because of the COVID and the divisiveness that's there. Yeah, what's interesting is, you know, we had good, I think, penetrance of giving out the flu vaccine. Uh, the COVID vaccine is significantly more effective than the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is actually a guess. We, this year's flu vaccine is a combination of four. All flu vaccines this year will be a combination of four. And that's based on what we see occurring in the South, right? So we see what's in the South and we try to prepare for that. Amazingly, the COVID vaccine is much more efficacious. Uh, 40 to 60% for the flu vaccine. We're talking 80 to 90% with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine against severe illness with the COVID vaccine. So the COVID vaccine is actually more efficacious than the flu vaccine. That doesn't mean we should not, not take the flu vaccine. Again, the name of the game here is not only um, uh, prevention of illness, but reduction of symptoms too. So even if you still get the illness, we know that people who are vaccinated, and this applies both to flu as well as COVID, who get the vaccine are at much less risk for getting severe disease. And that's very, very important because both Dr. Daisy and I see the sickest of the sick and our mortality has been very high in the hospital. And that's exactly what we're trying to prevent. And I think that's an excellent point with even the flu vaccine that has a much less of a uh, effectiveness of it. So 40 percent is something that sometimes even less. It still protects people at a, at a high rate from severe disease or death just like with the COVID vaccine. So that's really interesting to note. And I think the data will continue to be brought out about that. Generally, when you get vaccines, there's a there's a gap. You know, you get one vaccine, uh, it, say you get a shingles vaccine, and you've got a gap any other vaccines that you get after that. How are how are the flu shot and the, and the coronavirus vaccine gonna, gonna interact? Because we're talking about now, third booster shots mm -hmm. um, for there's a it's not a firm date but they're generally talking kind of the end of September is when you the general population that started getting vaccinated in December is going to start needing their boosters well that's right in the middle of flu shot season so how how are those two vaccines going to interact are we going to have to gap them can we plug them at the same time how is that going to work yeah and so uh, initially, we were waiting to see what data would come out with more and more of the COVID vaccines that were distributed to people to see how they would, what signatures we would see, what signals of any side effects would be seen. And the, the usual reactogenicity of it was seen, and we saw that even if they got another vaccine around the same time, there was no um, adverse events. And so now at this point, they can get both of them at the same time. They can get all of them at the same time if they'd like. And so at this point, there's no issues with that at all. I know, I know it's a topic we've addressed in, in previous podcasts, but just to, you know, reiterate the point, um, 
you know, with the, the COVID vaccine, that is an mRNA vaccine, whereas the, the flu virus is different. Like, how, how do are those, you know, is that the reason why those don't interact? No, no. So we have a lot of different kinds of vaccines, and I'll include them in our entire discussion. When Dr. Daisley said other vaccines, we're talking the entire schedule of vaccines, okay? So the flu vaccine, and there's a couple of them. There's live attenuated, there's inactivated, and there's recombinant. So there's a multiple t different kinds of flu vaccines. Um, what we are trying to say is we are normalizing the COVID vaccine. So it is included in the entire category of vaccines. If we're talking about children, for example, uh, 12 and older, and they are on a catch-up schedule, the COVID vaccine can be given with all other vaccines. So just like we give other vaccines, I, military people are well aware of this. <laughs> you guys just walk through a line and everyone zap, takes zap, a jab at you. Yeah, exactly. Zap, zap. It's just yep. guys on both, medics on both sides, and yep. you guys are running down the gauntlet. The COVID vaccine is now included in these categories of vaccines, so they can be given concurrently. There is no decrease in effectiveness, and there is no increase in regards to any major side effects. So COVID vaccine, flu vaccine, or any other kind of vaccine, the schedule should not be interrupted. So it's okay to get them all at the same time. And I think it's important to mention that even though with some of those categories of uh, vaccines that are live vaccines, they're still attenuated, meaning that they're inactivated. They're, no, they're not gonna cause any live infection. I think that is so important to bring out that with COVID vaccines, they're not a virus at all. That's a sequence of DNA like we've talked about before, really mRNA, really it's genetic and it's not gonna change your genetic sequence. And that goes the same with the flu vaccine, even though it's a completely different animal. You know, it's a, a live or an inactivated vaccine or conjugated, like you mentioned. And so in those cases, they're not going to be anything that's going to cause any disease. Is there any chance ever of that mRNA technology being brought to the flu vaccine? Yes. So mRNA technology is not new. It was discovered a long time ago. Uh, was actually one of the pioneering scientists was a woman. And that may partly explain why it wasn't immediately accepted. What I'm trying to get at, though, is it's not just going to be for vaccine development. This will be just like monoclonals, Regeneron, and things like that. A lot of the things that we've been talking about for treatment of COVID. mRNA will be an avenue of a lot of medical therapy going forward. There's research right now being conducted about using mRNA for cancer treatments, for example. So this will be more than just COVID. I think this will be a new area of medicine that we're starting to discover right now. And so it will be a platform we could look at for flu for sure, because this is one where there's no proofreading. And so there's a lot more of those mutations that could occur than you would see in other viruses. And then we're also looking at it for the research that we have for HIV AIDS, which is really exciting because that's another pandemic that's going on still after 40 years. And we'd love to end that. So getting back to the, the flu shot, um, you know, People say, you know, people worry about getting the flu from the flu shot, and we've already kind of debunked that. But what symptoms should people expect are normal for a, after a flu shot? Yeah, I think a lot of times people will get, and I've looked at lots of articles on this with lots of patients involved, and it's usually flu-like symptoms. 
So they get fever sometimes. They get the muscle aches, the joint aches, all those things that you would normally associate with the flu, yet it's not going to be quite as severe as a flu. And so the real flu that you would have gotten if you had not gotten the vaccine would have been much worse and could even lead to death. And that makes sense, right? We're triggering your immune system. So your immune system is going to react, but you are not getting the disease. That's important. And all of these symptoms usually resolve within a day or two at the very most. And I think that's the beauty of the COVID vaccine is the trajectory is even shorter than the flu one because even studies show that it's a little bit longer in the trajectory overall, not just the outliers. And so with the COVID, it's quicker and sometimes a little more reactogenic, but completely resolves. So we had a couple of questions that we uh, have gotten from some of our listeners, and we wanted to just kind of debunk these real quick. Um, somebody who's 42 years old, healthy, works out, eats right, doesn't smoke. Why do they need to get these vaccines? Yeah, so even though somebody's healthy, doing well overall, we still don't know exactly what your immune system uh, is the quality would be of that. And there's two different levels of that. There's t- different parts. A lot of times we're only looking at the antibody. We really don't know a lot of times what their, C- their T cells are looking at, like on that. And so it's sometimes like a gamble if we decide we're not going to get it and we're just going to allow ourselves to get the natural infection because we can still get reinfected. We can still transmit at a much higher rate than otherwise. And uh, I think it's really thinking about ourselves those around us, our children sometimes, our grandchildren if we're at that age, and others around us. So it's also something of sacrifice. We're sacrificing, like in the military, you sacrifice yourself sometimes for other people. That's what this vaccine is also. It's a sacrifice for others so that we don't get somebody else sick and so they don't die. Yeah, and not only is the community aspect important, but when you have that healthy guy works out 42 year old never been sick in his life has a strong immune system that's actually a detriment in some cases what we are seeing with covid as i do as a pulmonologist is an overactive immune system that's where the ards comes from adult respiratory distress syndrome uh, and lung damage is this immune system that we cannot control and that is in and of itself a bad process, a maladaptive process. So I do want to mention that, and the vaccine helps prevent against that. Yeah, it's like even in uh, autoimmune disease, sometimes think I probably shouldn't get the vaccine because this may make it worse. Not so. We really need that added protection for an autoimmune disease where it's your own body that's hyperreactive as far as its own defenses and causes things to spiral out of control. So. Right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll actually delve more into uh, some of those issues with immunocompromised people when it comes to COVID. You're listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. We'll be back with more right after this. I didn't want to talk. She just sat with me. That was all I really needed. We got back. One day he called me out of the blue. And it's comforting to know that I always encountered him to have my back. She called me from time to time. I really didn't think I needed any help. It took me from being really depressed to feeling like somebody cared to give me some hope. Just that one text. Be there. Your call, your presence, your words, your support. Be there and help save a life. Learn more about preventing suicide at VeteransCrisisLine.net. 
Millions plan for retirement online. Estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, and manage your benefits all from the comfort of your home. And give yourself the freedom to do what you want offline. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to The Nine Line, Southern Nevada's source for veteran-related healthcare news and information. Here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Welcome back to The Nine Line Podcast. John and Josh here with our favorite guests, Dr. Daisley and Dr. Kung. So we talked a little bit about the flu shot, but of course, the big thing on everyone's mind for the last what, year and a half now has been COVID. Um, of course, it hasn't been all the same. It's, you know, it's come and gone in waves, and we've seen spikes and valleys, and now we've got Delta. Um, and the last time you guys were here with us, we talked a little bit about, you know, Delta was kind of on the rise. We're seeing cases around, but it wasn't quite the dominant strain. You know, three months later, how's it looking? Are we, are we seeing predominantly Delta? Yeah, it's definitely the dominant strain at this point. It is definitely one of those of concern. Um, and in our population here in the community, close to 100% are being sequenced that are the Delta variant. And so that really just for, for us means there's more ability to transmit. There's a quicker ability for somebody to get to the virus load where they have symptoms, then they can go out of control as far as their own symptoms and worsening, et cetera, and of course spread it to others. And, you know, we, we talk about the, the you know, peaks and valleys and the, yeah. the COVID, uh, you know, battle against COVID. Um, you know, we were at a, a pretty low valley when it came to number of cases, um, you know, earlier, at, you know, probably springtime um, in the beginning of the summer. And then now that the Delta variants come back, it seems like we are at a spike comparable to what we saw last summer. Does that, you know, based on what were the trends that we saw last year, what does that portend for this winter? Yeah, so this winter definitely could be uh, even worse, unfortunately, because our vaccine rates are still low. We're not even close to getting herd immunity where we have the majority of the population vaccinated and then the the virus can kind of be weakened as far as its ability to trans to be uh, then, you know, it could, for other people to get it and for them to then transmit it to other people. And so I think this is going to continue. We're going to st still see the these continued hills and valleys and and uh, the same kind of pattern that we're seeing now. Um, it's a problem because at this point we had that time where people were not masked for a while. And so that was a problem for what's going to happen in the future because we don't know if we're going to get another inconsistent message. We just know that is at this point if we continue what we're doing now and hopefully get more people to get vaccinated, help them to be comfortable with uh, you know, what we're doing at this point as far as the mitigation factors, then I think we can then maybe drop it. 
you know, you mentioned herd immunity, and it's a buzzword that we've kind of bounced around, mm-hmm. you know, throughout this pandemic. You know, seeing these new strains and and you know variants develop, is herd, herd immunity really a realistic goal right now? Well, here's the problem with herd immunity. When we had initially talked about the numbers this time last year, we were talking about the wild type as in the original type of COVID. And we knew, roughly speaking, how transmissible it was. Delta is much more transmissible. So what does that mean? Her immunity actually needs to be a lot higher than it was before. So it's somewhat of a moving target based on how transmissible a variant is. And for us to achieve that number, both either with people who have been infected and recovered, and again, that's not 100% immunity if you get COVID, there's still a chance that you can get COVID again, especially with new variants. And two, we know that vaccination immunity wanes a little bit. There's still good durability, but it's not as good as it was when we first got the vaccine. So with waning immunity and escape from the new variants, that herd immunity that number that magic number starts to move a little bit and we're not quite where we should be in terms of getting there and this is why we still continue to see large spikes in covid cases so what does it take to get there then so again vaccination is one of the most important things okay we know that yes vaccinated people can become infected but their severity is a lot less and that helps with transmission as dr daisley mentioned this is kind of a community disease we're all in this together especially for the people who cannot get not just don't want to get but cannot get vaccinated right now that's children younger than 12 and people who for a medical reason cannot get the vaccine and immunocompromised people we know that their immunity wanes very very quickly and the response to the initial vaccine was a lot lower so it's for them that we are getting vaccinated as well i think the proof of the pudding that we have that herd immunity is real and is still a public health issue that we really have to say is real is looking at other communities outside of our own that are doing very well because they're at that vaccine rate they're above 70 or 80 percent and you're seeing their outbreaks are much lower and they're staying consistently low and that's really a good thing to see and they're still masking Mm -hmm. they're still distancing they're still following all those mitigant factors that we continue to have at this point which may be a little bit less consistent here than there and so I think that's something that helps us to say hey there's hope on the horizon because we can continue getting our numbers up um, and then we can see some improvement there you just mentioned that there are places that have hit the herd immunity 70 80 percent and they're still masking and doing things like that we've heard um, discussions lately where people are starting to say well COVID isn't going to go away it's just going to be one of these things that's always going to be around so what does that look like like what 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 you know, am am I going to have to mask going into the store forever? Like, what does that look like? I think, first of all, just briefly, I think it's important for us to remember that the previous pandemic that we had in 1918, it was a different virus altogether, a different circumstance, different everything. However, one thing that, that was the same as now is that a lot of the same procedures were also needed to be in place with masking, et cetera. And one thing they saw is that it lasted five years. And that's probably what's going to occur now is at least five years where that doesn't mean that we'll be masking that whole time. But at least for five years, we're going to see 
these hills and valleys and this inconsistency, I should say, with the surges and the non-surges during this whole trajectory. And so, and then after that, we'll wait and see how things evolve, because that's really what this is, is a constant evolution of data and those principles that we continue to learn. And I think it's not a moving target because I think we're learning more and getting closer to where we need to be. You know, we talk about the virus mutating into a more virulent, uh, more more um, transmissible mm -hmm. state. Does it ever go backwards? Does it evolve into something less transmissible, into something more benign? It's, it does, it do, and it does that all the time. Mm -hmm. But the point is that then it doesn't replicate, right? So we see a lot of loss of function mutations, and that happens all the time. But we don't care about those because those don't spread in the community. It's the gain of function that we really worry about. And as you've alluded to, the new variant, we're up to mu now in terms of the Greek alphabet of variants. What's interesting about mu isn't necessarily that it's overtaken delta, but it has spread very, very quickly. So it's in all, it's from 49 states, the only state uh, as of earlier this week that it wasn't in was in Nebraska, but it's in a lot of other countries. Now again, the numbers aren't high, but what is interesting to note, it is everywhere now. So we pay very close attention to it. The other thing that we really want to know about the gain of function or change, the mutation, is our treatments for it. We know dexamethasone works well for ARDS, uh, Regeneron, Remdesivir, those are some of the treatments that we use. Tocilizumab is another kind of medication that we give to people before they come into the hospital. What we worry about isn't just the transmissibility, but also the virulence of the disease. So if it becomes more lethal or our treatments don't work, that's a big problem too. And that's why, again, we're trying to stem the tide as early as we can. Yeah, and I think that there are those uh, diseases where sometimes, you know, they either lose their ability to continue to replicate what we talked about, or people get enough of their own, um, you know, uh, defenses, like all the other coronaviruses. They continue to thrive in our communities, but we have enough defenses so that it doesn't give us severe disease and doesn't kill us, but they continue. But yet things like SARS, which was 2007, that's where we started to really understand the mRNA vaccine a little bit. And at that point, we saw it was much more deadly than COVID-19. However, it died out quickly because it didn't have the same mutation ability. And so it just quickly, you know, became, you know, something that wasn't an issue anymore. So, Dr. Kung, I heard you listing off a, a lot of the... Uh the remedies and the the mm -hmm. treatments that you guys are mm -hmm. using right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear you mention Inromectin. Um, <laughs> Facebook uncles everywhere um, yes. would like to you know have a word with you about yeah. that. <laughs> well, why didn't you uh, Why didn't you list Inromectin? Okay, so again, full disclosure: both Doctor Daisley and I are government employees, and so we're not allowed to own any stock in any pharmaceutical company. <laughs> so uh, we have no dog in this fight. Um, you know, and the cheaper the medication, the better, right? We're the government. Um, again. We have looked at ivermectin data, and it is an antiparasitic drug. Uh, we have looked at a lot of different type of medications in this class all over the world, and we give an honest look for it. If we can use a drug to save our patients, we certainly will. The data not only is not good for COVID, but the amount of side effects and the toxicity, in other words, is really poisonous to our patients, is something that I don't think most people consider. When we give a drug, even if it works, like chemotherapy, we have to consider the side effects and how much adverse effect it has on a patient. And if the adverse effects and risks far outweigh the benefits, we don't give this medication. And that's what we're seeing with ivermectin. And I, oh yeah. 
And that I think it's important for us to understand that there's also the, the thought of mechanism there, you know. So why would it be that ivermectin would not work for this? And I think in other places, parasites do thrive. And if your immune system is trying to fight off some parasite, you can imagine that it wouldn't have enough oomph, enough soldiers to fight off against this. So in some certain circumstances, I've seen some studies where maybe it's made a difference. But I think it's important to always remember that one single point doesn't make a line. And so also here in the United States, we don't see that much of the parasites. Uh, there's one that is in the lung called strong, strongyloides, and sometimes can, people can be on high dose steroid, or they can get it from another place in another country where it might have some some interest. But all of our governing guidance uh, uh, different uh, groupings are all uh, saying that it's not helpful for us because of all the collected data that we have. And so at this point, we're saying that it's not helpful because of all the toxic effects that Dr. Kung was talking about. See, and I, th I, I thought the livestock medicine was just good against the Mu variant. That's a good go. one. immunity. There we go. No. <laughs> oh, God. So with breakthrough cases, we always knew that was a possibility. You know, we always knew that it wasn't going to be a hundred percent effective. There would be breakthrough cases with the the old variant, the original variant. Um, with the Delta variant, we're seeing more breakthrough cases. Um, as you're treating these these people, you know, these patients who come in, are you seeing a distinct difference between those who have been vaccinated and those who have, you know? have not been vaccinated. Oh, yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, in, at all levels of care, both outpatient as well as inpatient, and I work in the ICU, so critical care, um, the number of unvaccinated and the severity of disease in our unvaccinated population is much, much higher. And not just a little bit, not just a proportion, but we're talking orders of magnitude higher. Again, you know, the, the vaccine helps those who, number one, have underlying disease, but even healthy people as well. And we're starting to see a lot of people come in who are healthy with very, very severe disease. I know people say, oh, well, if we're having breakthrough cases, why should I take the vaccine anyway? Again, an order of magnitude less, an order of severity less too. So that's why it's so important. And the other thing that we're trying to get ahead of, of course, is these variants that we're talking about. And I think we have to remember the breakthrough is still a misnomer because I think, think that still covering people to some certain level, and that's the problem is a lot of, of us don't understand that, that you can still get the disease regardless of whether or not you get the vaccine. What we're trying to prevent is severe disease and death. So we can only imagine what it would be like if you didn't get the vaccine. That's right. And you were asking earlier, what will it look like if we live with COVID? Well, I'm hoping it's going to look like the common cold. Mm -hmm. You can probably get sick from it and it'll knock you off for a couple of days, but you stay home, recover, and everything's going to be okay. That is our ultimate goal, I think, Dr. Daisy and I, for COVID. You know, all of us in the healthcare profession is never going to go away, we don't think. It's never going to be a day where we don't have COVID. But if COVID is like the common cold, I think we can deal with that as a society. So one of the, the big reasons people were hesitant about getting the vaccine was the lack of full FDA approval. Mm -hmm. The fact that it was you know, EUA right. only and that people thought they were, you know, it was still, still experimental. Right. Well, the Pfizer vaccine now has FDA approval. 
Um, do you see that also happening with Moderna and Johnson & Johnson? Yes. So the timeline is going to be very short, probably within a couple months, within one month for Moderna and probably one to two months for Johnson & Johnson. Again, I know there's a lot of people on the other side who are saying, why is the FDA taking so long? Why is the approval taking so long for children y younger than 12 years old? There's a lot of data, and the FDA is working as fast as they can to look through this data, as are we. So we don't want to miss anything. But we do have the numbers backing us up. And so full approval means that it's gone through the original process looking at all of the data in terms of the safety profile and the benefit profile. And we do expect that for children, toddlers, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson very soon. All of them probably by the end of this year. Yeah, the beauty of it is we know that the FDA is not taking any shortcuts, and they haven't since the beginning. The only thing that made things so that we can get the emergency use authorization is they took some of the bureaucratic part of, out of it. But they'd still, the rigor of it was still the same. And I think it's important for us to know that Johnson & Johnson came out a few months after Moderna and Pfizer, so that's why there's going to be a little more delay on that one. But we expect by the end of the year that children, those that are two and up, will have the that expected EUA for them so they can start getting vaccinated with at least Pfizer to start and then Moderna to follow. Now, Dr. Kong, earlier you mentioned that there is a, a shorter um, life of, of immunity for those who are immunocompromised. Right. Um, now, the VA has begun to give additional doses of the Pfizer vaccine mm -hmm. to some of our immunocompromised mm -hmm. veterans. Uh, mm -hmm. Last week, actually, that began, and um, it's by appointment only, mm -hmm. so we're still seeing them uh, come in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, do you expect that to be extended to everyone at some point? Okay, so just a quick clarification for our immunocompromised um, teammates and patients. Uh, it's not that they wears off faster. What we think is that they probably had a less robust response. So let's say you're immunocompromised and you haven't gotten the vaccine yet. We would actually put you on a schedule one, two, three. Uh, instead of one, two, and then wait eight months to get your third one. So you would actually get your booster, quote unquote, uh, along a set schedule uh, if you are starting your vaccine um, uh, regimen right now. Okay. Um, what we have found is, again, we still have very robust immunity after two shots. Okay. The booster is just an adjunct. So in addition, we recommend everyone social distance. We recommend everyone wear a mask. The booster is along those lines as well. Do you absolutely need it? No. But is it good to have? Yeah, absolutely, because it only increases your immunity and your robustness and the, the durability of the immunity. So that's why we're recommending it, especially with the raging delta right now. The numbers still continue to go up across the United States. We have to take another measure to bring it back down, and that's the recommendation for the booster. And I think that the data right now is a little stronger when it comes to the immunocompromised population because those are definitely the ones where their two uh, lines of immunity are probably weaker than most. They don't trigger it quite as easily. They need more and more exposure than probably we would, and that's an issue, and we're going into the winter months here, and so we're going to be more vulnerable. There's more uh, at line, uh, really at risk. So, And as far as the, uh, you know, the possibility of having newer vaccines that are you know, built to withstand or, you know, be, maybe built to, uh, to target some of the, the new variants that we're seeing. Um, is there any news on the development of those? So those are being developed right now, and they're including the new sequences. Um, again, none of the variants, including Delta, has that much escape. We still find a great deal of 
uh, immunogenicity with the original vaccines, and we'd rather operate along those lines because those are easily polluters and we have them in quantity right now. But yes, if there will ever be a variant that escapes completely the vaccines that we have now, we can rapidly sequence them and develop an mRNA vaccine to target those. Yeah, and I, I mean, at this point, like you say, there's like no lack of coverage there. Mm -hmm. And it would take a lot more studies to be sure that with a tweaked version of it, it's adequate for all to take. And it's really indicative, you know, something that's indicated in those scenarios more than just using the original sequence. That's right. So. We're pretty confident about the original yeah. right now, and Absolutely. we wouldn't want to change it. And if you haven't gotten your first dose of the original vaccine, uh, we highly recommend that you come in and do that. Mm -hmm. We are still operating the pod on a walk-in basis. So uh, you can still come to the, uh, the VAMC and uh, they'll, they'll get you hooked up with your first dose. They'll set you up with a schedule for your second dose and uh, it's never too late. Additionally, if you need your flu shot for this year, uh, we have begun giving our flu shots. Now we are not giving up at the pod but all of the primary care clinics in the area, as well as all of the primary care clinics within the hospital itself, um, will be giving those out. If you have an appointment, great. If not, you can still be seen on a walk-in basis as well. So uh, make sure you come in and get your flu shot as soon as you can as well. And as you both mentioned earlier, you can still do your flu shot in conjunction with the COVID vaccine. On the same day, yep. yep. Gentlemen, mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining us today. It's always, it's always a pleasure. And um, I always feel like I, I come away with this, these conversations with a lot more knowledge. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. it. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you, listeners. And we will see you guys in two weeks. You've been listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. For more information about what the VA is doing for Nevada's veterans, check out our official webpage at www.lasvegas.va.gov or follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Las Vegas VA. Thanks for listening.